Okay, let's um, let's get started. Um, I want to welcome everybody to uh, to the LSE. Uh, my name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the uh, Department of International Relations here. The department is sponsoring uh, today's lecture. Um, I'm very pleased to be able to welcome our uh, speaker today, Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, Mr. Mayorkas is the Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of uh, Homeland Security. Uh, he's a distinguished graduate of the University of California at Berkeley um, and the Loyola Law School. And he's held a number of um, uh, high-level posts uh, in the U.S. Um, government, including a stint as President Obama's Director of uh, Homeland Security, Citizenship, and Immigration uh, Services. And before that, he served as uh, Bill Clinton's um, choice as U.S. Attorney for the Central District of um, California. So he has a lot of experience in the public sector, um, as well as having worked in the private sector as a as a lawyer. Uh, we've asked the Deputy Secretary if he'd share his thoughts about um, the evolving relationship between um, the UK and the United States on such issues as counterterrorism, cybersecurity, uh, and aviation uh, security. Um, and what he's going to do is he's going to give a formal presentation for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Uh, but he really wants to have a kind of give and take with uh, with all of us, and so he's then going to uh, open it up for uh, a, a general conversation. Um, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSEUS. Um, as usual, what we're going to do is, you know, after the presentation, um, we'll, we'll take questions. And depending on how this goes, I mean, normally what I try to do is take a cluster of questions and then we'll give the Deputy Secretary an opportunity to kind of respond to the ones that, um, you know, uh, he, uh, he wants to. Um, and uh, so that, with that... That seems totally inequitable. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll answer well, whatever questions well, are posed. We'll, we'll see how it goes. So... Um, <laughs> So, um, at any rate, uh, please join me um, in welcoming uh, Deputy Secretary Mayorkas to the LSE. Well, thank you very much for uh, being here, and, and thanks to the school for inviting me to speak and exchange thoughts with you. And Professor Trubowitz, uh, thank you very much uh, for uh, putting this together. Let me, if I can, before I uh, read my uh, formal remarks, um, uh, share a thought with you. I, uh, I walked into this uh, school uh, building and saw some very uh, powerful and poignant uh, photographs of children uh, from uh, the montage of um, the transition in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And it was, um, I saw at the end of it, um, it was uh, um, associated with Doctors uh, Without uh, Borders. I first um, encountered uh, two doctors from Doctors Without Borders for the first time in my life at a refugee camp uh, on the uh, Kenyan-Somali border in Dadaab. And it was uh, when I was the director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And uh, I uh, am a refugee from from Cuba, a, a political refugee. Uh, my parents uh, fled that country with my sister uh, and me immediately following uh, the revolution. And I've always uh, defined myself as a refugee. 
understanding uh, the notion of displacement uh, of, of individuals uh, from a, a country of origin. And I went uh, to the Dab, which is um, in the middle of uh, the desert, and it, it was then a camp that was designed for 90,000 people, and at the time that I arrived there, there were 300,000. And um, uh, I had uh, a, a great deal of security uh, around me, and the individuals in the camp uh, did not. Uh, I considered myself before that experience a refugee, and then I saw a very different uh, type of refugee in that camp. Uh, refugees who had uh, suffered such extraordinary harm in their lives, such extraordinary, extraordinary squalor, and so very little hope. And it was difficult for a period of time after then for me to continue to consider myself a refugee in a, uh, in a, a, a relative uh, sense. And um, the, the power of opportunity in life and what this country means uh, to individuals like that who come from um, less than nothing um, uh, was a very market. But also, and what, what makes me think of it, is uh, the heroism of some individuals. I was extraordinarily proud to work next to the Refugee Corps of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services that traveled uh, to hotspots around the world to provide relief to individuals and the promise uh, uh, of tomorrow. But I was um, astounded by their heroism and deeply moved by the heroism of two young doctors who were working inside the camp and lived inside the camp without any security uh, or anything and just gave so much uh, of themselves. Um, uh, something that, uh, you know, I can't even approximate, uh, no matter how, uh, how much I, I, I give in any given uh, day in, in public service. It's just a, um, a, a depth of giving and a breadth of giving uh, that um, uh, speaks to the power of humanity. Um, now for my uh, more formal uh, uh, remarks, <laughs> for my more formal uh, remarks, I, I will share with you that I have not been uh, to London uh, for many, many years, and it's wonderful to be back uh, in the city. It's an extraordinarily beautiful uh, uh, city, and uh, it feels very, very much like home. And I think that's a function of the relationship uh, that the United States has uh, with our close partners, uh, friends, and colleagues uh, in the UK. Uh, the relationship is indeed a special one. It is one in which, if you accept the view of author Earl Hitchner, the chief difference is that Americans think 100 years is a long time, while the English think 100 miles is a long way. Uh, we are linked in so many ways in today's ever-changing and evolving threat environment. We are both faced with similar challenges to the security of our respective homelands, and it is vital that we continue to rely on our special relationship in order to meet those challenges. The threats are not only changing and evolving, but they are also constant. They require that we remain agile and vigilant and continually adapt. We must stay one step ahead of the next terror attack, 
the next cyber attack, while at the same time facilitating the lawful trade and travel that underpins our economies and indeed our societies. And this is very much uh, part of the tension that we uh, in the Department of Homeland Security, along with our partners in the UK, uh, wrestle with each day how to facilitate the lawful flow of goods and people at a time when we must be vigilant to ensure that no one who seeks to do uh, uh, us harm um, exploits uh, uh, our openness. In order for us in the United States to continue to be effective in stopping the dangers that lay in wait beyond our respective borders, we need the continued engagement and partnership of the United Kingdom. And I think you need the same of us. The expertise, knowledge, and information sharing that come from this partnership are essential to protecting our homelands and our people. Today, I, I would like to speak with you about some of the partnerships we have in place between the United States Department of Homeland Security and the Home Office of the UK and some of the successes they have allowed us to achieve. These partnerships help us to innovate and to recognize the shared threats we face from counterterrorism to cybersecurity, from stopping the spread of deadly infectious diseases to promoting free trade and travel. First, allow me to tell you a little bit about the Department of Homeland Security. It is the third largest department uh, in the United States government with 240,000 or so employees, 22 components, and a total budget of about $60 billion. Our mission is as broad and diverse as our size and organizational reach is expansive. Just consider the fact that we are responsible for, among other things, counterterrorism, the administration and enforcement of our immigration laws, cybersecurity, aviation security, maritime and border security, protection against nuclear, chemical, and biological threats to the homeland, protection of our national leaders, protection of our critical infrastructure, training of federal law enforcement personnel, and coordinating the federal government's response to natural disasters. Not a day passes that we do not see in the news something that falls wholly or partially within our jurisdiction, and our responsibilities are many. You may, have, of course, recall that we are the department that was born of, out of the terrorism of 9-11, and so counterterrorism is and will remain our cornerstone mission. Prior to 9-11, the United States did not have a Ministry of the Interior or a Home Office with similar basic missions of bridging national and domestic security, counterterrorism, and border and port security. Perhaps because our nation was protected by two big oceans from many of the world's hotspots, we thought that one department of the United States government devoted to the mission of homeland security was unnecessary. That thinking obviously changed on 9-11. The dangers from that fateful day that left our Twin Towers fallen are far more decentralized and complex than ever before. Al-Qaeda, as it existed 13 years ago, is no more. The extremism has spread. Not only is there core al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and Pakistan. There is al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, al-Shabaab in Somalia, the al-Nusra Front in Syria, and the newest al-Qaeda affiliate, al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. There are groups that, although they are not official affiliates 
of al-Qaeda, share its extremist ideologies, such as Boko Haram in Nigeria, and most notably in the news, ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. ISIL, uh, previously known as al-Qaeda in Iraq, is vying to be the preeminent terrorist organization on the world stage. But these truths are neither foreign nor new to you here in the UK. The memories from the 7-7 London bombings are very much still vivid and ever-present. Those horrifying explosions and resulting loss of lives, although differing from 9-11 in the origin of its actors, similarly changed the security landscape of your country. It made plain the nature of threats that we must deal with as partners in fighting terrorism. In the United States, we are very focused on foreign fighters heading to Syria, just as Prime Minister David Cameron is. Through the shared work of the United States and the UK, we know individuals from the US, Canada, and Europe are traveling to Syria to fight in the conflict. As just one of many examples, last week a young man was arrested in London on suspicion of facilitating terrorist travel to Syria. Such cases are becoming increasingly common. We are concerned that not only may those foreign fighters join ISIL or other extremist groups in Syria, but that they may also be recruited by these extremist groups to leave Syria and conduct attacks elsewhere. I have seen reports, and it has been widely reported in the press, that more than 500 Britons and about 100 Americans are believed to have gone to Iraq and Syria. So both the U.S. and the U.K. are impacted and invested in this fight. In response to the concern of ISIL, Prime Minister Cameron has raised the terrorist threat level from substantial to severe, an indication of the urgent threat environment we are in. He has also stated the need to institute new, strengthened counterterrorism measures and pass legislation focused specifically on this issue. Our department last week announced heightened security measures at the thousands of federal facilities that we are charged with protecting across the country. We also face threats from those who self-radicalize to violence, the so-called lone wolf, who did not train at an al-Qaeda camp or overseas or become part of an enemy force, but who may be inspired by radical, violent ideology to do harm to Westerners. In many respects, this is the threat to the homeland, illustrated last year by the Boston bombing and the murder of drummer Lee Rigby in Woolwich and the recent murder of a soldier in Canada that may be the hardest for us to detect. It involves independent actors living within our midst with easy access to things that in the wrong hands become tools for mass violence. We must together be innovative in dealing with the potential foreign fighter or lone wolf terrorist living amongst us. There is no single panacea. There is also an element of unpredictability to it that um, distinguishes it from some of the other terrorist threats uh, that we have encountered in the past. In the United States, countering violent extremism is a centerpiece of our counterterrorism strategy. It is premised on the principle that communities are at the forefront of preventing violent radicalization. We intend to work with communities to identify threats before they emerge. We intend to focus on prevention, not reaction. We intend to embolden communities to develop counter-narratives to the violent ideologies that terrorist organizations are broadcasting all over the Internet 
to recruit young Americans. We need community organizations in a position to touch those disaffected from society in need of something or someone to believe in, belong to, or worship, to stress that violence, terrorism, and groups such as ISIL are not the answer. We need to foster community resiliency that can surmount ISIL's very slick media campaign. We also are working closely with retail businesses to alert them to materials that could be used as explosive precursors and the types of suspicious behavior that a retailer should look for from someone who buys significant quantities of these materials. It's, um, it's amazing how uh, the world changes. I, uh, when I was a federal prosecutor, uh, we, we thought of precursors as um, someone walking into uh, a store and buying an excessive amount of Sudafed uh, to, manu uh, to manufacture methamphetamine and traffic uh, in it. And now we speak of precursors in terms of explosive devices to kill multiple uh, individuals. I, I, um, I can't help, you know, every morning I, I start the day uh, with an intelligence briefing that gives a, a, a picture of the landscape across the world from a national security uh, perspective. And I can't help but ask myself uh, from time to time, um, am I uh, uh, giving, are we uh, collectively, are we giving uh, to my uh, young daughters uh, a better world than the one uh, uh, that I was uh, brought into? Um, I mentioned that a couple of days ago in an interview, um, actually it was yesterday, uh, in an interview, um, and um, uh, the gentleman um, uh, asked me what my answer was, and um, I said it's best uh, to answer uh, by actions, not necessarily uh, by words. Uh, hopefully uh, the work that I do and my colleagues do each day, and hopefully that you will uh, do in your own uh, respective ways, will answer that question uh, affirmatively. We must show our youth by examples in our country's history that extremism and hate are not the answer. Engagement is the answer, and we must do so in a way that preserves individual liberty, fairness, and equality under the law. And I do think in that respect, um, Homeland Security is not just about the securities that I mentioned uh, at the beginning in terms of national security and the like, but also the security of our principles and the security of our values. The core democratic values of freedom, openness, and inclusion, these are what the violent extremists fear the most. But these are the same values that have brought so many of the world's people uh, to our shores. But the fact is we can neither close our borders nor build higher walls in hopes of keeping the terrorist elements out. In today's global economy, that is an ill-advised approach. For instance, New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport is the most popular international destination for people flying out of London Heathrow Airport, transporting almost three million people a year. For that, we have partnered to enhance joint targeting to track Syrian foreign fighters. We have been able to do this by using tools that help to identify terrorist travel patterns. But that is not all. Our countries have pursued new information sharing agreements 
to open up new windows of opportunity for collaboration between our border agencies. To facilitate the exchange of this information, the UK has several personnel stationed at some of our installations in the US, such as our National Targeting Center, which allows for the real-time exchange of threat information. I've been focused and engaged on these issues. I co-chair the Joint Contact Group with the UK Home Permanent Secretary, and we meet twice per year. That is what has brought me to London uh, yesterday. Since, uh, since its June 2003 inaugural meeting, the Joint Contact Group has provided a strategic direction for the U.S.-U.K. Homeland Security cooperation and collaboration. Among the many action items that have come from this group is an initiative to establish a joint exercise between DHS and the Home Office in the, areas of foreign, in the area of foreign terrorist fighters. Information sharing in our partnership has also been indispensable as we work together to contain the spread of the Ebola virus. DHS attachés and staff have participated in meetings with UK airport and government officials to discuss the screening of travelers from Ebola-affected countries to help strengthen the capacity to detect and respond to potential new cases of Ebola. Another area where um, the doctors uh, without borders have um, exhibited uh, their heroism. The UK introduced enhanced screening for Ebola at Heathrow Airport in early October, which was subsequently expanded to Gatwick and Eurostar. This coincided with the en additional enhanced measures that have taken place in the US as well. We continue our consultation on other procedures for halting the spread of this disease. And our work does not end there. Protecting cyberspace is critical to Homeland Security. Our cyber networks and systems are as much a part of our nations as our cities, farmlands, mountains, and coastlines. They are where we shop, bank, work, play, learn, create, and connect with family members. They are indispensable to modern life and are the very backbone of our economies, as well as a major nerve center of our national security. Although cyberspace is a place of innovation and opportunity and full of great people, it is also a place of risk and danger, where bad actors take advantage of security weaknesses to cause harm. Our partnership with the UK on cybersecurity is one of DHS's most developed international partnerships. For over a decade, we have both been signatories to bilateral agreements, which have involved memorializing our collaboration in a variety of ways, including aviation security, <coughs> radiological, and nuclear detection. I can't tell you as I read uh, through my <clears throat> prepared remarks how anxious I am to hear your questions and engage <laughs> in a dialogue. So uh, I might take the liberty of turning pages more quickly than I can read them so we can really uh, uh, get to an engaged uh, discussion. And I promise not to um, elect the questions to answer, <laughs> but I might <laughs> modulate my answers according to, um, uh, to the question opposed. What would you like to talk about? The real point that I want to communicate is um, that uh, we have no stronger uh, and, and uh, better uh, partnership in, um, the, uh, in the world than we do with the United Kingdom. And in an ever-evolving um, uh, threat uh, picture, it is partnership that is critical uh, to securing um, uh, 
our people, our nations, and uh, our values and principles. Let's let's have a discussion. So uh, raise your hand, and uh, we'll we'll take this one up here, and then uh, we'll go way to the back. Um, we'll take two questions. Please introduce yourself uh, briefly before uh, posing your question. I'll get everybody. I'll come around. Hi, my name's uh, Nadim uh, Shad, and I study, um, do my MSc postgraduate here in the Department of Government. And my question to you is, um, a few weeks ago, Joe Biden got in trouble for telling the truth about some of the U.S.'s international partners, and uh, I understand your position as a member of the U.S. government. So my question to you is, how does the Department of Homeland Security um, deal with uh, partnerships that could be potentially troublesome and burdensome for the United States and, and make, them, make them more effective in terms of uh, issues like counterterrorism? And let's just take the second question, and then I'll let you respond to the two of them. Hi, I was just wondering whether you think the short-term methods for countering terrorism are hampering a long-term solution to Islamic extremism. I'm sorry, can you, can you repeat that question? I apologize. Yeah. Uh, how do you think short-term methods of tackling terrorism are hampering long-term solutions to Islamic extremism? Do you think that you're, while you're tackling uh, terrorism in the short term, you're alienating a population in the Middle East? And, and who are you? You're... Uh, my name's Beth, and I'm a student at LSE. Right. Thanks. So I don't... Um, um, let me answer them. Uh, let me answer both questions uh, uh, chronologically. Um, so uh, the easy answer, uh, right, is uh, through uh, diplomacy, uh, right? But um, in terms of how do we work on um, partnerships that are um, not as vibrant and, and strong as the one uh, 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 that I've described is so uh, close uh, with the UK. It's a matter uh, in that context of, uh, of di- diplomacy and dialogue and effort. It's a, it's a function of finding common interests, uh, not uh, focusing on the differences, but finding the common interests and using those as a platform for collective effort. It's, a, it, it, it's um, simple to say, uh, and it, it does take um, um, a great deal of work at times because sometimes um, we approach uh, issues uh, differently from different perspectives, whether it be um, uh, parameters of privacy uh, interests, uh, whether it be uh, parameters of um, First Amendment um, freedom of expression. And one has to find the commonality and use that as a vehicle for, uh, for change. Um, I, uh, so that's an interesting uh, question. I, I might uh, leave uh, to um, uh, the professor to, uh, to add uh, to my answer. But the question I would pose back, if that's not too unfair to you, and I, maybe I'll treat it as a rhetorical question, um, I'll leave that to you, is, uh, why, why are the two necessarily at odds uh, with one another? Um, the, uh, uh, implicit in the, in the question is that the short-term effort to address um, uh, the terrorism uh, can impair uh, the long-term relationship. Maybe, maybe so, maybe not. That's a very case-specific uh, analysis. It's not a monolithic question nor a monolithic answer. And I don't necessarily feel that inherent in the short-term effort is a, um, is a threat to the long-term uh, solution. 
But, so there's but, a question right back here, and then there was a hand there. I'll, but I'll give you guys a, in the a, next a round. Shot, we'll take a, two a chance, time. if I may, Professor. Um, uh, uh, sorry, I just wanted to clarify. So you would argue that. Uh, Sorry. Uh, recent engagements in Afghanistan and Iraq have benefited the American... I didn't say that. Uh, but your, yours was perspective in nature. We have a question right up here, and then we'll come over to the side here. Mayorkas, uh, good evening. I apologize for arriving late. I'll, uh, I put the blame on the London transport. They're not as efficient as the killing machine they're sending to Iraq. My name is George Davis. I'm from Basra, Iraq. I would like to put to you why do you feel that America, Britain, and the, and the Western, so-called Western world, are 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 in a, in a better position to decide what life we should have in the Middle East? Are you not content? with the destruction you've, you've heaved on uh, Afghanistan, on Libya, and now you've gone back to finish your job in Iraq. What, what, uh, who's, who's, who's a terrorist now? You maintain in the green zone uh, a big contingent of assassins, okay. and you maintain, you keep the... Please, let's, well, let's try to keep the question. 23 militias in, in power in, in, in Iraq. You maintain the government in Iraq for the last 12 Sir, years. we don't have time for speeches. We want to keep the questions really concise and to the point. But the question is, how, what, how do you propose to uh, get back Iraq back to pre-2003? Okay. So, um, and while you're thinking about that, let me take one other question right here, okay? Hi, um, I'm Harry Prabhu, second year undergraduate here at the LSE. Um, so you mentioned in your speech that there's a divide in values between us and many and, and terrorist organizations, but I would say that um, this similar divide of values exists between us and many of our allies as well, between, say, us in China and us in Saudi Arabia. And in the past and recently, some of these allies, such as, say, Syria and Libya, who used to be our allies, the populace of those countries have gone on to stage revolutions, and then we've had to destroyed the partnerships we've built and stand against them for the sake of our values. I was wondering if you think, is this a sustainable way of conducting international relations, or how could we operate better? Uh, so, um, if, if I may, um, uh, I, I don't think um, uh, my, my answer will likely satisfy you, sir. I don't know that we will... We'll try, try, please. No, no, no. I, I don't. I, uh, I, I may not even try because. Um, uh, but I uh, understand your no answer. Hey, please, no, no. So please, wait. You know, at the LSE, we give all of our speakers an opportunity to answer questions openly. It's a free discussion and debate. So please hold. Go ahead. L l let me. Um, uh, let me. Let me say this, and I. I appreciate uh, uh, both the conviction and emotion with which you uh, express your your views. Um, uh, my focus, um, uh, sir, is uh, to make sure uh, that um, the homeland of the United States is secure from terrorism, and uh, the actions that we take uh, as a government are sought to achieve uh, that end. That is our first and foremost uh, responsibility. And I understand that you may not agree uh, with our foreign policy or the actions that we take in furtherance of that goal. Uh, I will understand uh, that. Uh, the, the, the world of international relations is not a static one, uh, is a dynamic one. And um, relationships uh, uh, can change uh, with time. 
values, quite frankly, sometimes uh, evolve. Um, and, um, uh, I, you, and, and you know what? Uh, sometimes uh, a, a partner uh, today is not necessarily a partner uh, tomorrow. I have um, a complete confidence uh, that the partnership between the United States and the U.K., uh, is not only a historic one, but, but an enduring one. But I will tell you that in the context of um, uh, terrorism, uh, we sometimes uh, see the evolution of a group uh, that uh, 20 years ago uh, might have been a uh, designated terrorist organization and, and today uh, is not because of the evolution of that group or the direction might have been uh, otherwise. And the relationship that we have with other countries uh, in addressing that group may similarly change by, the, uh, by dint of the nature of the change in that group. And so the uh, importance of recognizing the dynamism and uh, evolution of the world in which we live and in which we engage is a critical part uh, uh, of our um, development of foreign policy and diplomacy. Okay, I saw there, there was a question up here on the left, the gentleman uh, with the red tie, and then um, we'll go back there uh, in the center. Um, so we'll take two questions. Thank you. Mr. Deputy Secretary, thank you for speaking to us today. Um, my name is Tim Gray. I'm an independent consultant. Um, this morning in the New York Times, there was an article. Um, it was an interview with the new, relatively new uh, head of GCHQ, director of GCHQ. Um, in the course of that interview, I didn't write this actual wording, uh, but he was quite concerned about uh, and critical of uh, particularly U.S. Uh, Internet companies and their enhancement of encryption technology for the mass market, uh, suggesting that this uh, facilitated uh, communication between terrorist groups and among within terrorist groups. Um, is this a concern shared by your department? Um, and is it appropriate for the head of GCHQ to be taking a position, you know, such as he did in the, in, in the comments in the paper this morning? Uh, do you want to go respond immediately to do, do you mind? Um, go right ahead. Um, uh, uh, thank you. So, um, uh, Director uh, James Comey, the director of the Federal Bureau of Intelligence, the FBI, has spoken very powerfully uh, on this subject as uh, the leader of one of the key uh, law enforcement and national security investigative agencies in the, in the United States, speaking uh, not only of the fact that it facilitates uh, terrorists in uh, communicating with one another uh, with impunity, but it also uh, makes it very difficult uh, when, the, when we, uh, as authorities, have information uh, with respect to particular individuals of interest from a national security perspective, uh, the impenetrability of their communications and the fact that it insulates them uh, from the probing that we need to engage in to protect uh, our homeland. So it is of deep concern uh, to us. And I think this issue, um, uh, I think, uh, is not resolved. Take a question right there. Come down here. Uh, hi, I'm Daniela. I'm a, a law student at UCL. 
Um, my question is that um, don't you think that there's a danger of undermining what you cite as America's, uh, one of America's core principles, i.e. that of openness, uh, when evidence is increasingly indicating that many methods associated with counterterrorism, such as mass surveillance, are operating behind closed doors, as in without statutory authority? Um. Can you repeat the, the beginning of the question? Forgive me. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was just wondering whether you thought there was a danger of undermining what you cited as one of America's core principles, i.e. that of openness, when it seems that many, um, yeah, the evidence shows that many methods that we associate with counterterrorism, such as surveillance, are operating um, behind closed doors, so without statutory <coughs> authority being in place already. So um, uh, we, we have uh, protections in our institutions uh, uh, to ensure that we conduct uh, our activities in a way that comports uh, with due process, and due process is different in certain settings than in other settings. And some of the things that we engage in, some of the intelligence and investigative work that we engage in, is of a non-public nature. And to make it public would uh, undermine uh, and undercut its effectiveness. And l let me, if I can, just draw a, a perhaps the, the, the simplest example. Uh, there is a, um, a structure uh, 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 down the block, and we have probable cause uh, to believe that uh, in that structure, uh, individuals are uh, manufacturing explosive de uh, devices uh, to, de to detonate in a very public uh, setting. Um, it is doubtful that we will place a phone call uh, into that structure and inquire of those individuals whether, in fact, uh, that activity is going on. Uh, quite the contrary, uh, the effort that we will take uh, from uh, either an intelligence perspective or an enforcement perspective is to act without them knowing that we are doing so. And, and that is of vital significance uh, to the effectiveness uh, of achieving our goals. And um, uh, we will draw the lines uh, uh, where we believe um, uh, our authorities uh, permit and where uh, our civil liberties and civil rights permit and our privacy interests permit. We in the Department of Homeland Security have a freestanding Office of Privacy and a freestanding Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties to ensure that protections are afforded when we engage in our activities. And then there are uh, methods of accountability, whether it's a court of law, a public, a public opinion, uh, the fourth estate, and those drive uh, a better government. Right here, and we'll come over here and there and then back there. Okay. Uh, I'm Nick. I'm a master's student here at LSE, and I was hoping you could go into a little bit of what the United States government is doing as much as you can um, to combat cybersecurity from an interdepartmental perspective, given that you can put a lot of the blame on not stopping 9-11 on no communication between the FBI and the CIA. Um, so what are we doing to prevent that from happening, say, from a cyber attack from a terrorist organization or from a foreign state? Okay, so let me, let me um, if I may brush past your premise on 9-11, I'm going to brush past that and say, so this is a, an uh, all-of-government effort, and there are presidential uh, orders, uh, and um, 
and documents that establish respective responsibilities and collective responsibilities in the United States government to address uh, the cyber world. We in the Department of Homeland Security are entrusted with the responsibility to protect the .gov space and interface with the private sector uh, to protect the .com space. Uh, the Department of Defense is responsible for protecting the .mil space, and we work collectively, and we've, we've vastly improved uh, uh, those efforts across the federal government to work uh, more uh, in a more unified uh, fashion. Uh, the, the, in, um, in institutional terms, uh, the, 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 the battle on the cyber front is relatively new. It is um, advancing uh, with the rapidity one would expect of a high-tech uh, uh, endeavor. Uh, but so is our collective strength across the government. We have more work to do, but we've achieved a lot over the last uh, uh, number of years. Okay, we're going to take a question here, and then we'll come back. We'll go back there. I've got you on the radar, the other people. Go Thank ahead. you, Mr. Deputy Secretary. My name is Matthew. I'm a member of the public. Um, Ed Snowden's effect on the international partnership and, if I may, the terrorist appetite to acquire a nuclear bomb, only a matter of time. These seem to be your Arkley's heels. Would you like to comment? So uh, we, we look uh, forward to the day that uh, Mr. Uh, Snowden is afforded due process in a court of law in the United States, and he can make his arguments with respect to um, what he might perceive as his vindication, and we would make uh, our arguments with respect to what we firmly believe is his culpability. Hello. I'm Jenny Gross. I'm a reporter with The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for your speech. Um, I have a follow-up question to the one about uh, tech companies and terrorism. What specifically are the U.K. and the U.S. doing together to make sure that tech companies do not facilitate terrorism? That was the... Um, I think we are uh, looking at this um, uh, side by side um, uh, with a very shared uh, perspective uh, in terms of the concerns uh, uh, that are posed by some of the uh, recent policies, and I think we're working side by side in determining what the best course of action uh, is. It was a, a subject of a very productive discussion over the last couple of days. It's hard for me to be more specific than that at this juncture, and I apologize for that. I'm having trouble keeping up with the hands here. Here we go over here, and then we'll come back Thank here. you. Thank you very much for your speech. Um, my name is Alessandro Canchan. I'm a researcher and lecturer at uh, Middlesex University, and I deal with Middle Eastern studies. It, mine is a, uh, you know, a very personal question, but with uh, uh, general underpinnings. Uh, I, was flying, I was trying to fly to Canada uh, earlier this year in, uh, in, in August, and I was stopped at a check-in desk. And I was told that I was uh, uh, inhibited from flying into Canada by decision of the U.S. government. Uh, so I'm an Italian citizen, and I was shocked, obviously, because I was going to a conference. Uh, so I, I, I made some research, and it turns out uh, I might be in some uh, homeland security no-flying list. 
So my question is, uh, uh, well, I deal, I, I deal with Iran in my research. I do, do Middle Eastern studies, but I do, you know, the 19th century mysticism, not, nothing to do with, uh, <laughs> with, <laughs> with terrorism or nothing. So, so I go to Iran to consult manuscripts and talk to people and do research, but ordinary uh, research activity. And uh, so my question is, how do you, uh, so what, what are the measures uh, you, you put, put, put in place in order to minimize that uh, innocent people, people that, that don't have any uh, ill intentions, uh, uh, get caught in, get, get stuck into this uh, uh, mechanism, which is impenetrable for, for, for us. So I, I try to, 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 to look into that, but there's no way, no formal way to, uh, to know the reason, to know the motivation behind, uh, behind my case. Sure. And, yeah. So is Iranian mysticism on the list? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So let me, um, if I may, depersonalize uh, uh, the question because I, you know, obviously I, I can't speak um, to your situation, but um, uh, uh, the measures, the, the measures that we that we take uh, do afford uh, individuals uh, the right of redress, and our redress processes uh, do exist with respect to uh, travel restrictions that we might impose for national security uh, reasons. Um, quite candidly, uh, uh, there uh, is an allegation uh, um, uh, that uh, our redress processes are um, substandard and do not comport uh, with due process, and that is a litigation, a court proceeding that is currently uh, pending um, in um, uh, uh, Western United States. I'm not sure which. I was about to say a state, but I'm not certain which state. I know the circuit of federal courts in which it uh, is pending. And so um, uh, uh, the, the, um, the mysticism uh, might uh, uh, be vindicated, uh, might not. But we do have redress uh, uh, capabilities, um, and, and they are being challenged now. Uh, and, 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 and if I may, I'm yeah, sorry, ahead, Professor. Um, and if... With respect to your particular case, you need to know exactly what to do. Um, we, we, you can see me afterwards, and we'll provide. Um, uh, <laughs> I must confess that was my, that, that was uh, the purpose of my meeting. Yeah. Right. Well, you can't see him immediately afterwards. To the U.S. or Canada or even Mexico. I mean, we prevented from going to Mexico, so it's, I'm forced to go on holiday. <laughs> You can't see him immediately afterwards, but you can follow up with an email. So um, there, there we go. We have a question right there. Hi. Uh, my name is Xiao Man. Uh, I'm a student here at LSE. And thank you very much for your speech. Uh, I was wondering, uh, for a democratic country like the United States, how would you address the possible dilemmas uh, between increasing homeland security and censoring thank that you. and um, intruding individual privacy? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes uh, it makes uh, uh, perfect sense. So um, we have privacy laws; uh, they are uh, well established, and we have laws that define civil rights and civil liberties of individuals. And we must work within those parameters. It is, I don't think. Um, uh, uh, Something to, uh, where I would be uh, on a limb to say that not everybody agrees where we strike the balance. 
and um, whether we fall within the lines or outside, uh, we believe uh, uh, that we do. But, but safeguarding national security um, can be accomplished while adhering to privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties interests. You know, when I was the director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, uh, one, of, one of the things that I spoke about to the workforce was the fact that we can be vigilant in ensuring that an individual that seeks to exploit the system uh, unlawfully is prevented from doing so. We can do that effectively while still remaining a welcoming and embracing country, adhering to our values as a nation of immigrants and adhering to the laws that permit individuals to be admitted to our country. I don't think those two, might there be tension at times? Yes, but those two are not exclusive of one another. And to say that they are, I think, is, a, is, a, is just uh, wrong and extraordinarily harmful. Uh, let's see, we have a question right here, and then we'll go back there. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm a first-year undergrad doing IR here. Um, I'm just wondering what your response would be to the claim that the U.S. is acting like an empire. Uh, with regards to Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, I would I would respectfully uh, disagree with that. Uh, that and I think that harkens, uh, quite frankly, um, uh, resonant um, the question that the gentleman um, uh, asked me uh, with respect to our uh, policy. And um, uh, uh, the lady asked me, uh, I think, the first question about uh, short-term uh, responses to terrorism and long-term. Uh, 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 foreign policy interests, and I would respectfully disagree. Question back there. Sorry. Uh, hi, my name is Catherine Kelly. I recently finished my degree here at the LSE in International Migration and Public Policy. I'm actually starting with DHS at the end of the month. Um, and, um, my Congratulations. Actually, thank you. In, in, in what capacity, if I may? Um, I'm going to be a communications specialist in the National Protection and Programs Directorate. So that um, is the directorate that is on point for us, sir, uh, in the fight against um, um, uh, cyber attacks. My question is actually more migration and international partnership related. Um, my question is, how does regional integration, like here in the EU, the case with the UK, possibly not with the EU, affect how the US goes about regulating or Diplomacy-wise, with its partnerships, the growing the growing tendency towards regional integration in Asia, in Europe, in Africa, does that affect the U.S. and our partnerships globally? I'm, uh, forgive me, I'm not sure I understand uh, the the question. Could you reframe that? I apologize. Well, for example, for the the U.K. can't necessarily make decisions based on migration or international policy without you know without without. Oh, I, I understand. Um, <laughs> no, they need um, approval from the EU. Uh, but <laughs> it's a um, it's a globalized world. Would be my answer. Um, I, I mean, uh, honestly, it's very um, uh, difficult, uh, increasingly difficult. Um, while some of you might uh, respectfully disagree, uh, given questions about. Uh, the United States is potentially an empire, uh, 
um, uh, a, a view of us as uh, imperialistic. I, I understand that. Uh, but uh, unilateral um, action uh, in, um, uh, is increasingly um, uh, ill-advised. Oh, we've got, uh, let's, let's take this right down here, this question, and then we'll go back up there, right here. I'll get everybody over on this side. We've got a few over here. Uh, my name is Gregory. I'm a third-year international relations student here. Uh, with regards to like international partnerships and counterterrorism, uh, recently, you know, uh, Turkey's been under a lot of criticism for its rather porous border when it comes to uh, the conduit as foreign fighters going to Syria. So I was wondering if, you, uh, if, in your opinion, there's been significant progress, at least in the part of Turkey, or as part of a chain between like U.S., Europe, and Turkey in, in regards to like uh, closing this kind of loop in the flow of uh, foreign fighters to Syria. So, um, short answer, yes. Uh, we have a, 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 a good and strengthening partnership with uh, Turkey, as um, uh, uh, does uh, the U.K. Uh, Turkey is situated differently than we are geographically, and its challenges are therefore uh, different uh, than ours. But there are, uh, to my point about finding common interests, there are uh, shared uh, concerns and shared challenges, and I think that is one of the, the bases, one of several bases uh, of the work that we do uh, together. It is a strengthening partnership. Hi, my name is Catherine. I'm a master's student at LSE. Now, I understand that your work um, has a, must have a degree of flexibility, but how clearly defined or standardized are terms such as probable cause or a, a casualty? Is there... <laughs> How standardized are your definitions? So um, uh, those are two very different. You're interested in probable cause? Well, uh, probable cause is a legal term. And uh, it is a very, um, it, it is a, uh, a term that is uh, defined in uh, case law uh, by precedent. And, um, uh, and and so it, it is well-defined, but um, the judgment of what, constitute, what constitutes probable cause in a particular case is a very fact-specific, fact-based inquiry. Got a question right here. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm a uh, master's student in international relations here. Uh, this may be a question you can't answer directly, but do uh, the election results last night have any um, implications for your department, such as things like immigration or NDAA uh, reauthorization? Can, can you comment on that? Um, uh, so, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what the, um, the ramifications are of the election uh, results. I, um, I can't really predict uh, what they are going to be. I will tell you, I think you asked with respect to immigration. You know, um, uh, my hope and certainly the, the president's enduring and steadfast hope is that Congress, uh, both the Senate uh, and the House, uh, will come to an agreement um, uh, to fix our broken immigration system and pass comprehensive immigration reform. The president has uh, articulated um, uh, since the uh, last uh, collapse of that effort, even though the Senate passed the bi uh, bipartisan legislation, it failed in the House, that he will act and take executive action uh, to fix the system. In other areas, uh, what that means for 
much-needed legislation in discrete areas, whether it's in the cybersecurity realm or others that uh, impact uh, the department. Uh, I think we're going to wait and see. I think we're going to wait and see. It's going to be um, interesting. We have time for, I think, one more question. We'll take it right up here. Hi, um, my name is Ashley, and I'm a student getting a master's in public administration here at the LSE. And I apologize that it's a somewhat contentious question, but um, it's no regards. No apology needed. It's, uh... <laughs> it's regards to the relationship between the United States and Israel, which I know is a very uh, strong relationship, and they're a very strong ally of us in the United States. Um, but my question is regards to whether the de the Department of Homeland Security if you could shed some light on what is viewed as the advantages of that relationship as well as your response to some of the challenges with that relationship in current affairs. So, um, uh, you know, let me only, I can only speak about um, my personal experience. I can't answer that uh, as broadly as I think you framed it, uh, not uh, out of reluctance to answer it, but just quite frankly out of inability uh, to answer it. Uh, I have worked um, uh, with our counterparts in Israel on the national security agenda. They have uh, that this issue has been uh, uh, far more historic for them than it has been for us. And so we've learned a lot from them and they learn a lot from us and we exchange um, uh, information and, and, um, and, and capabilities. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship uh, in that regard. Let me... Go ahead. Uh, no, no uh, go can ahead. I? Can I? Um, uh, since you mentioned uh, public, um, was it public policy, pu public administration? Let me let me share with you, uh, if I can. Uh, I don't know if um, uh, most of you. Uh, I know one of you uh, knows what you're going to do uh, next. I, I don't know if many of you uh, do or don't. Uh, when I was um, uh, an undergraduate, I had no idea. Uh, what I was going to do, nor did I have any idea what I wanted uh, to do. It was actually one of the greatest uh, sources of despair uh, for me um, <laughs> that, um, uh, that continues to plague me, uh, uh, believe it or not, but now I take solace in the, in the winding road. Uh, I, I hope to be uh, an activist in that regard to actually determine uh, my future for, for myself, but you know that expression, uh, uh, John Lennon's uh, "Life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans." Uh, that's often uh, how I feel. Let me let me share with you, and it and it harkens back uh, to where I started uh, when I visited uh, the camp uh, in Dadaab, and I and this was um, uh, very pronounced in my years in my 12 years as a federal prosecutor. How precious an opportunity! How uh, 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 precious an opportunity in life is, and you have. Uh, hopefully, you will. Um, well, I I was in the uh, private sector. Uh, uh, the professor uh, described that I was in uh, the Clinton administration um, uh, up until 2001, and then I returned uh, to the private sector, and um, uh, and then I returned. Uh, to public uh, to public service and and the person I have to thank for that is um, uh, this might surprise you is Hannah Montana and um, the reason uh, is 
uh, because uh, we were living in Los Angeles, uh, California, and um, uh, one of my daughters, uh, Giselle, was uh, eight or eight or nine years old, and um, I made the um, what I felt at the time was the ultimate sacrifice and took her to the Hannah Montana uh, concert. And I had spoken uh, during the eight years that I was in the private sector. I had spoken to my daughter uh, quite a bit um, in the uh, in the later years of that experience when she was, I thought, perhaps old enough to understand uh, really what one can do in one's life for the benefit of others. And my wife um, uh, was a public interest lawyer working in um, fair housing and um, uh, fighting discrimination, and, and she echoed uh, that lesson uh, to our daughter. But I, I took my daughter to the Hannah Montana uh, concert, and I saw in her for the first time uh, a young woman, very young woman, a uh, young girl, looking on stage um, and uh, projecting. Uh, projecting for the first time, uh, thinking I, what, what she might be. Maybe, maybe in, in the years to come, she would be standing uh, before 35,000 uh, people uh, singing. And, uh, and so I realized that my, my daughter was starting to dream uh, about, um, about the future. And I came home and told my wife that uh, if she is at an age of dreaming, I have to uh, make sure that she sees uh, in her father um, what he says, not just hearing it, but seeing it and, and, and seeing uh, the devotion of time to hopefully make things uh, better and engage in the difficult issues that we're discussing tonight and be able to stand uh, before people and have them perhaps pleased with what one is saying and what one is doing, uh, but perhaps violently opposed to it. Uh, that's the reality of uh, struggling with difficult issues. Um, but I'm, um, I'm remarkably proud uh, to be in government service. I think one can impact uh, people individually uh, and on a systemic uh, basis. And I hope that as you consider what you might uh, do, uh, that you, you do uh, consider uh, it, um, you do consider uh, government uh, service. Uh, it's an extraordinary fulfilling uh, and rewarding uh, endeavor. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you.